0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. After nearly 40 years as a doctor of internal medicine... Dr. Ron Nato knew that something was wrong. His blood work came back with sky-high numbers. And he's a doctor, and so he, he knew what those numbers meant, but he also wanted to get confirmation for what he already knew. He knew, just by looking at the results, that he had stage 4 pancreatic cancer. That's not a good one. Not that any cancers are good, but that's not the one you want to get. It's very deadly, very... Um, very painful. And so the first oncologist he went to refused to acknowledge the results that showed these unmistakable signs of advanced cancer. He, he knew it, but he, he just didn't want to say the words. He couldn't bring himself to deliver the hard news. So he went to a second doctor, and this doctor uh, was, a, was a specialist as well, and he did a biopsy, and Later, outside of the room, Dr. Ron Nado, who's now the patient, is is hearing this doctor talk with a medical student about how how big the the, the tumor was and how aggressive it was. And uh, the only problem is that the door was open and Dr. Nado could hear them having this conversation uh, discussing his case without uh, having been told face-to-face what was going on. And... The botched delivery of this grim diagnosis left Dr. NATO determined to use what little time he had left to share one final lesson with future physicians. And this was, this, so with a little bit of time left, he said, I have one final lesson I want to teach students, and it's this. Be careful how you tell patients that they're dying. He was saying, of of all the things I want to do with this little bit of time I have left, I want to train doctors how to deliver hard news. And I get it. It is uncomfortable. No one wants to be in that position. I mean, just sharing bad news of any kind is difficult, let alone having to look another human in the face and say, you're going to die. But it's important for people to know the truth about their diagnosis. It's important to really come face to face with that reality because it enables them to process it and enables them to make informed decisions about uh, treatment options. It, It enables them to say goodbye. And I think we would all agree that a doctor who refuses to acknowledge and straightforwardly reveal a terminal diagnosis is unworthy of trust. Though it's heartbreaking and Obviously, very difficult news to deliver on the other side of it. No one can afford to live in ignorance of that truth. It's heartbreaking and difficult to deliver. And yet the, patient, the doctor who genuinely cares for their patient will find a way to deliver this hard news. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's like the preacher is stepping into the room to deliver really bad news. And like a good doctor, he doesn't hide from the truth. He doesn't shrink back from it. He doesn't cover it up in technical jargon. He sits next to us and tells us some hard realities, some difficult truths. And so as we bring chapter 7 to a close, we're going to see three movements, three pieces of really bad news. In verses 15 to 18, we're going to see that because of sin, life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. If you've been paying attention, if you've been looking around, you've probably thought these words. Why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? It seems like a reversal of the way things should be. Life is painful and there are no guarantees. Second, in verses 19 to 24, we're going to see that because of sin, wisdom is unattainable. Wisdom is unattainable. It's a valuable asset to attain. And yet because of sin, we are often hypocritical, blinded to our own inabilities. And ultimately, full comprehension of wisdom is just beyond our grasp. And third and finally, in verses 25 to 29, we're going to see that because of sin, Failure is unavoidable. We don't get better on our own. Thousands of years of humans trying hasn't gotten any better. We are both held captive by sin and captivated by sin. It is both something that enslaves us and at the same time, it's something that allures us. And because of that, failure is unavoidable. As Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes... Ecclesiastes was written to depress you. It was written to depress you into dependence on our joyous God and his blessed will for our life. See, before we can grasp the good news of the hope of the gospel, we need to hear the bad news, this depressing news concerning the cancer of sin and its metastatic spread into our lives. In other words, if you're going to really grab hold of the gospel... As your only hope and trust, you, you have got to be thoroughly convinced of your need. See, it's not enough just to know, hey, that's, there's some good theoretical news out there. At some point, you have to say, that's my only hope. So let's lean into the diagnosis this morning. Start together in verse 15 to see that life is unpredictable. Verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. Now it's important, we've been several weeks, I think this is week eight now, into the book of Ecclesiastes to remind ourselves of what the preacher is going for in this book. What is he doing? Well, he's he's confronting his own mortality head on. It seems like every other chapter he's talking about his pending death, his th- th- this this day of death, and he's been... Um, looking at the, and, and really seeing that this is a, 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 a ubiquitous problem for humanity. Every single person is going to have to confront the, their, their own mortality. And then he says there's, there's various things that we do to create these bubbles to insulate ourselves from that reality. Listen to David Gibson. He says the preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, possessions are very often the bubbles that we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And his needle, the sharp point he uses to burst the bubble, is death. So at every point along the way, he's saying, these are the things that we generally try to do to insulate ourselves, to to hide ourselves, to to create things around us so that we don't think about our death. And he's saying, death is the very thing that I'm going to use to pop those bubbles to show you that they do not insulate you for that day. He's confronting the reality of death precisely so that it can impact how we live our life. He's not trying to be overly morbid, but he is trying to say the wise person will realize that that day is coming, and you don't want to get to the end of your life because you can't relive it. You know what I mean? Like once the day is over, you can't go back and change it, right? No matter how much you long for, going back to some other point in time, it's impossible. And so he's saying you should live in light of the end. He wants us to let the sobering reality of our death shape our priorities and goals, our ambitions and desires, so that we don't get to the end of our life and say, I wish I would have. And throughout this book, he's used the word vain. Shows up as vanity, it shows up as empty, it shows up as futile. And he's doing so to describe the impermanence and fragility of life. Life, everything about it has this sense of impermanence. It doesn't last, it's brief, it's fleeting, it's fragile. If you don't hold it carefully, it just seems to fall apart in your hands. And it shows up again in this passage. It's that Hebrew word that we said, hevel. It means empty, brief, fleeting, fragile. He's not saying life is pointless. Rather, he's saying life is brief, so live on point. It's a big difference. He says, in our foolishness, what we tend to do is to fill what little time we have with things that are void of lasting significance. See, if life is brief, if it's here one minute and gone the next, we shouldn't treat it like it's forever. And we shouldn't waste that time with trivial things. See, the problem is we tend to trivialize the significant and we make the significant trivial. It's the human problem. And so now as we come to the end of chapter 7, the preacher makes some observations about life in a sin-soaked, heaven-plagued world. The rest of verse 15 reads like this. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is the preacher's way of saying, why do bad things happen to good people? This is the classic uh, philosophical problem of evil. Why is there evil? Why does it seem like good people have bad things that happen to them? If you go back to the earliest writings of humanity, you will find that people have been observing this reality and asking, why is it so? It goes all the way back to the beginning. It is hardwired into humanity to want life to be fair and predictable. See, it makes sense if someone is a terrible person to go, yeah, terrible things. If, if terrible things happen to terrible people, we have no problem with that. We go, that, that seems right. But when people who are generally good, we, we can debate about, like, is there anyone who's generally good? But for the sake of the philosophical question, when we see someone who's generally kind and helpful, when bad things happen to them, we go, that doesn't sit well with me. Do good things, and you should expect good things. Do bad things, and you should expect bad things. That would be a predictable way of life. We would hope, in theory, that the world would, op- would operate on this, this scale of predictability. And the preacher's observation isn't novel. He's not saying something that we don't already know. It's a universal problem. Every generation has seen the tragedy of what we would call senseless suffering. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you know who she is? She's a prolific author, and uh, she's well-equipped to talk about senseless suffering. You see, up until the—for 17 years, she lived a very active life of enjoying riding horses and hiking and tennis and swimming. Her, her father was a, a, an Olympic athlete, so just like being mobile and athletic and out, out in the, uh, the, the outdoors, and it was just a part of her family's life, and then— on July 30th, 1967, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and misjudged the shallowness of the water. And the dive caused a fracture between the fourth and fifth cervical uh, vertebrae. And she became paralyzed from the shoulders down. Imagine that at 17. You have your whole life ahead of you. You're just used to an active lifestyle. And in a moment, done. Done. Never again to feel feeling in her toes. Never again to feel what it's like to stand upright. And she has famously written about her struggle with depression and thoughts of suicide. She's talked openly about anger and doubts about why would God allow her to suffer in this way. She's asked the very personal question, did she do something to deserve this? Was this some sort of cosmic retribution? See, why does it seem that good people often suffer for no good reason? And why does it seem like wicked people prosper without a care in the world? Now let me say up front, this this isn't a sermon where we have the time to delve deep into the problem of evil and human suffering. That's a good question. And we've covered that In a lot more detail in some recent sermons, I think of part three of our Genesis study as we were looking at the life of Joseph. I think about our series in 1 Peter when we got to chapter four, a sermon called The Crucible of Suffering. I highly recommend if you miss those, go back and listen to them. There's some great books on this I've read over the years. One in particular, probably my favorite, is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. Excellent treatise on thinking both theologically and practically about suffering. There's a book by Paul David Tripp called Suffering, Gospel, Hope, and Life Doesn't Make Sense, and all of those would be well worth your time and to, to slowly walk through them. But that said, our, this morning, the, the, the preacher kind of goes in a different direction, and so we want to let the text guide us this morning. So he doesn't really go down the path of why does this happen, but the path of how to live when it does happen. Which is also useful for us this morning. His, his instruction at this point is more focused on how to live in light of suffering. Not why does it happen in the first place. So let's look at where he goes in verse 16. He says... So he made that observation. Now he's giving him some directives. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool... Why should you die before your time? Now, at first reading, this sounds like he's saying, listen, don't be too good, don't be too bad, don't be a goody two-shoes, and don't be uh, America's most wanted. Like, find somewhere in between. Like, be the mediocre middle. Just, Just don't be noticed, you know what I mean? That's not what he's saying. He's He is saying, don't be overly or excessively righteous. And the emphasis here is on that adjective. Basically, what he's saying is, don't be legalistic. In other words, think about it in context of good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. He says, listen, don't for a minute think that you can guarantee good fortune and good outcomes by living perfectly. See, there's a tendency in us to think, listen, if bad things are happening to me, it's probably because I'm doing something wrong, and so I need to do things better. I just need to do better, and then I can guarantee that these bad things won't happen to me. And he's saying, don't do that. That's a trap. That's not how the world works anyway. And then in contrast, he says, don't be exceedingly wicked. He's granting. Listen, some sin is going to be inevitable. That's a given, and we'll get to that in a minute. And a few verses, he's going to say that. in a few verses, he's going to say everyone is a sinner. But someone could look at that reality and say, "Listen, there are no guarantees. Seems like the world is is unfair, and so I'm just going to give up on righteousness and wisdom in its entirety. You know, I'm just giving up." So he's saying, "Listen, there are two tendencies that tend to happen, and it's important that you." As I'm talking about this, I try to say, which one am I? When, 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 when life is hard, when, when it seems like there's suffering, typically we, we tend to fall into two camps. One that says, okay, i got to do better. i got to pull myself up. i gotta, I got to figure this thing out. I, God, God must be telling me I'm doing something wrong, and so I've got to figure it out. There's a group of you. Some of you in this room are like that. And then there's another, another group of you that says, I'm done. I've tried, and I'm just giving up. Solomon says, don't fall into those two mentalities. Solomon is looking at life, and he's saying, listen, I get it. Life does not make sense. It's not always fair. It doesn't always add up. But he is also saying, life doesn't work by karma. You've heard that word before, karma? That's the the belief that you get what you deserve. Do good, and you should expect good. Do bad, and you should expect good bad. Solomon says it doesn't work like that. You don't always get what you deserve. Life is unpredictable. There isn't a formula or a cheat code that can guarantee success. So I grew up in the 80s. I had the first Nintendo game system. Original. NES. Okay? There were like two buttons on it. My kids control have so many buttons, I don't even know how to get to all of them. And listen, these games were impossible to beat. You know why? You couldn't save your progress. If you wanted to beat a game, you did it in one shot right then. And I remember thinking, it's impossible. There's, there's like, sometimes there's not even enough time. you like, you get through a couple levels and it's over. Or it's like time for dinner. You know what I mean? And you couldn't save your progress. So... You needed a lot of time in a lot of lives. And I remember one time a friend at school said, Hey, there's a cheat code. I was like, What do you mean? He's like, Listen, when you go, turn it on up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B A start. You know, I'm like, Up, up, down. You know, I wrote it all down. It's the famous Konami code. And it worked for like hundreds of games. And when you turn it on, you put in that code and it would give you like infinite lives. You know, Mario could do things that Mario could never do. And you could beat these games. It was awesome. It gave you the edge you needed, the cheat code, the hack to beat these unbeatable games. And listen, there's no cheat code to life like that. There's no up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. There's none of that. See, some people see the hard realities and sufferings in this life and they conclude, I can beat this game. There's a cheat code. If I just put it in, if I just do the right things, I can guarantee that no more suffering happens. I can live a good way. I can live my life in such a way that either by my good works or by my wisdom, I can avoid all suffering, all pain. I can figure out the cheat code to life. But listen, there isn't one. No cheat codes. Life is unpredictable. Now in light of that, some are going to say, well, then I'm not playing. I'm taking my ball. and I'm going home. I give up. I'm not going to play. I'm just going to give in to the wickedness and do whatever I want. The path of deconstructionism it's saying listen I don't like this game, I'm out and Solomon says the wise will learn to avoid those two extremes of legalism or lawlessness of trying to pursue perfection, to obligate God to give you a life of comfort and ease or to just give up altogether there's no cheat code to life it's unpredictable You can't guarantee good fortune and favorable outcomes by your works. See, on one hand, legalism is a, uh, it's an extreme that's motivated by selfishness and pride. It's really not a a motivation to honor the Lord with your life. It's really saying, I don't like what's happening. I don't want bad things to happen to me. And so I'm going to let that drive the things I do. That's not a heart looking at the Lord. That's a heart looking at yourself. And on the other hand, license to do evil simply because life is unpredictable, Solomon says it's not only incredibly foolish, but it will only end in death. Only ends in death. So it's not that Solomon is against righteousness, like a desire to live a godly life in word and in deed. He's not against that. He's against a type of rugged legalism That attempts to live in such a way that that believes that now God is obligated. It's like God, I mean, we don't always say this out loud, but we're like, God, I've done all the right things. How could this be happening to me? Right? We've all said that in our heart. God is not obligated to give you a life of ease. Verse 18, he says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from them both. So he says, don't do this, don't live on either extreme, so what is he saying we should do? Well, he says, listen to what I'm saying, take heed of these warnings, the one who fears God will avoid these two extremes. So instead of falling in the trap of legalism or license, he's saying, fear the Lord. Is life unpredictable? Yes. Can you guarantee a life of comfort and ease and longevity? No. There's no formula, no cheat codes. You can do all the right things and still go through trials and difficult seasons of life. And of course you should still value wisdom and righteousness. So don't give up on that. This is the same guy, Solomon, who wrote this. Same guy who says in Proverbs 3... My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So you might be saying, hold on now. Didn't he just say that, that like by doing the right thing, we can't add to the length of days of our life and peace? And now he's saying the opposite? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, wise and righteous living is good for you. It often leads to length of days and years of life. It's like good diet and exercise. It is really good for you. But, but it, is, it is not the cure-all. Some people who eat perfectly and, 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 rec- and exercise regularly still die in the middle of the night from a heart attack. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't just guarantee that things will happen. They are good for you, but not, there's no guarantees that nothing bad is going to happen to you. So the book of Proverbs is written to say, listen, this is how life generally works. This is what is, is good for you. So live according to righteousness and wisdom. Generally speaking, those who live according to wisdom and righteousness do have length of days. Things do work out better for them. But it's not a guarantee that it will. See, if the book of Proverbs is about how life generally works, the book of Ecclesiastes is about the exceptions. When things don't go that way. Solomon says, life is not neat and predictable, like some kind of formula. Sometimes the answer is, this doesn't make sense. Sometimes that's the answer. When life doesn't add up, when it isn't fair, Solomon says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. See, this isn't the first time this phrase, fear the Lord, comes up in the book, and it won't be the last. See, as you're learning to read your Bibles, when things show up, Often, that's the author's way of saying, hey, big point here. I'm writing it several times. Don't miss this. It showed up in chapter 3, verse 14. Showed up in chapter 5, verse 7. We'll see it in chapter 8 again, and we'll see it in chapter 12. It's a big theme in this book, to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority. He's your deepest love, and he's your foundational trust. When all three of those things are in, in uh, tandem, that means you there's a proper fear of the Lord. Or another way to think about it is God has your attention, he has your affection, and he has your allegiance. Three A's. You can remember that. Attention, affection, allegiance. We give our attention to something, don't we? Right? You give your affection to something. We, we, are, we are lovers by nature, aren't we? So we we give our love to things. And we are also loyal people. We form allegiances, don't we? We have our little tribes, yes? To fear the Lord means that God is at the center of your attention, affection, and allegiances. It means that you want to live a life that pleases Him. It means that you take the, the gift of life seriously. And see, when I have a proper fee of the Lord, I recognize his holiness. I recognize his perfection. I recognize the fact that I can't game the system by doing good deeds and and put God in this obligatory position where he now, as the God of the universe, is bowing to me and saying, well, I have to give them these things. At the same time, I also realize that giving up Trying to live a life that honors him is just abject foolishness. You see how the fear of the Lord keeps us from those two extremes. See, if I fear the Lord, I won't give up and just turn to a life of wickedness and evil because I fear the right judgment that would come. At the same time, if I fear the Lord, I recognize he is holy, he is wise, he is sovereign. I trust him. To fear the Lord puts you in that position in the middle that says i'm going to honor him with my life and i'm going to trust him life doesn't make sense it doesn't always add up so instead of trying to beat the system or giving up solomon says fear the lord in luke chapter 13 jesus says as much it's one of my favorite passages in the bible and there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Jesus is, is standing there, and these are like the headlines of the day. It'd be like flipping open your, your news app and just reading some headlines to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, did you hear about this? And there was a situation where um, Pilate had uh, killed some um, Jewish Galileans. So they tell him about it, and Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners ...than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18, so now Jesus says, I heard some headlines too. And he says, hey, did you hear about the one, about the tower in Siloam... ...that fell and killed all these people? Jesus asked, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish... Jesus is confronting just a commonly be- held belief at that time that the reason why those, the tower fell on them was because they had done something bad to deserve it. And Jesus says, well, the reality is you're all bad. And so in one sense, you all deserve to have towers fall on you. Okay? But that didn't happen as like a direct retribution for their sin. Sometimes towers fall. In a broken world, towers fall In a broken world, there are oppressive rulers like Pilate who do sensible acts of tragedy. But if you look at those things and you see people dying and you start contemplating what was so bad in their life that they deserved that, he's saying, you've completely missed it. What you should do when you see people dying is go, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Death and tragedy and suffering should bring you to a place where you contemplate your own mortality, where you look at your own sin. See, Jesus confronts the false reality of karma. And trust me, you actually don't want to get what you deserve. If karma were true, none of us would pass through judgment. Because if you really got what you deserve... The Bible says what you deserve is everlasting death. That's what we all deserve. So let's give up on karma because it's a really bad way to live. You want to live by grace, unmerited favor, getting what you don't deserve. Where God says, I sent my son to die in your place for your sins, not because you deserved it, but because I love you. Don't, you don't want karma, you want grace. Friends, tragedy and suffering are not related to your performance. That's not what's going on. Ultimately, everyone will die and we live under the curse of sin. And Solomon says the wise will repent of their sin and entrust themselves into the merciful hand of God. Friends, the first piece of bad news... Sounds like I did that for dramatic effect. I promise you, I didn't. Because of sin, life is unpredictable. So instead of giving up or frantically trying to live your life in such a way that you mitigate out all suffering through legalism, Solomon says, Fear the Lord, trust Him, receive all that He gives you, both the good and the bad, with gratitude. And I look with me at verse 19 to see that because of sin, wisdom is unattainable. Solomon says, "Wisdom gives strength to the, man, to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city." As Solomon moves into this new section about wisdom, uh, it's important to recognize that for Solomon, wisdom is like a big deal. He's the guy who wrote much of the book of Proverbs, all these short talks and different proverbial wisdom. When God came to him in his youth and said, "I'll give you whatever you want, what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. It's a major theme in his life. The word wisdom or wise shows up 53 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So every four to five verses, Solomon is saying, this is what wisdom is. This is what wisdom is. Every hundred words or so, he talks about wisdom, which is like every other sentence. Wisdom is a big deal. And here he says it's valuable and it gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers in a city. What he's saying is, you know, you have these like counselors who get together to help govern a city. And with 10 counselors, what do you get? Ten experiences, ten gift mixes, you've got different strengths. Where you might be weak, this other person might be strong. Where you may not know how to do this one thing, this person does. So a council of ten rulers collectively should have a lot of shared wisdom, right? That's the idea. But a truly wise person, Solomon says, is like having that plurality of voices and collective wisdom. So far, so good. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and ever sins. So he's like, wisdom is so awesome. Yeah, but there's sin. As you would expect, the good news is quickly followed by bad news. And if that shocks you, you haven't been paying attention. That's, that's Solomon's MO. So far, much in this book, the preacher has looked at the curse of death and the plague of heaven, And now he says, listen, you know what's caused all of that? Sin. This is the universal diagnosis. The preacher is willing to say without equivocation or without hesitation that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one gets a passing grade. And just before you think, man, maybe Solomon is alone in this conviction, this is all over the Bible. Let me give you two examples. Psalm 143 verse 2, for no one living is righteous before you. And Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. See, before the wise should think too much of their wisdom, Solomon says, even the wisest of people are still plagued by sin. They're still sinners. Even the godly are actually ungodly. Even the righteous act unrighteous. Even the wise people traffic in forms of foolishness. And to make his point, he gives us an example. He says, don't take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So to prove his point, he says, listen, you know how you don't like it when people talk about you behind your back? No one likes to hear people say rude things about you. First, he says, listen, don't take it too personal. Don't take all those things to heart. And that's great advice that we should all do well to learn that just because someone says something doesn't mean uh, it, it, it needs a response. Like, wouldn't the Internet be a better place if we all live by that? Not everything needs a comment. Not everything needs a reply But to this advice, he says, and here's the sticker, the kicker. He says, listen, I know you don't like that, but guess what? Don't you do it too sometimes? And immediately all of us are guilty. There's not a single person in this room, like even the nicest person in this room, has thought bad things about people, has said things about people behind their back. It is a human problem. So, to prove his point that everyone is sinners, he says, I know something every single person in this room has done. So, before we get on the throne of our high righteousness, before we consider all the rude things that people have said about us in the past, he says, You know that you yourself have done the same thing. And it proves his point. Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes, Our tongue is only the tip of the iniquity iceberg. I love that. You want to talk about human sin? He says, Just look at your tongue. Look at what your tongue does. The things we say. The proof that all human beings are inescapably flawed is right between our teeth. Friends, wisdom is a good thing. We should seek it out. At the same time, because of sin, wisdom will only get you so far because we are often hypocritical. And not only that, Solomon's going to tell us that we are limited in our ability to fully grasp wisdom. Look what he says in verse 23. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, and deep, very deep, who can find it out? So after saying that wisdom is valuable and how everyone is fatally flawed by sin, he brings this point to a conclusion. He says, as hard as I've tried to lean into wisdom... As a remedy and solution for sin, it was far from me. It was far from me. He says, I, I wanted to be wise. I wanted to figure out how to live this like perfect life, but it was far from me. I tried to overcome sin by being wise, but it was unattainable. And when he says like that thing about um, that which has been is far off, it's his way of saying, listen, even if you try to learn from the past, And make the necessary corrections. Trying to learn and attain full wisdom is impossible. In other words, he's saying, you can't do an autopsy on the past and figure out exactly what went wrong. And come out with the answers necessary to overcome sin and live in a perfectly righteous way. If the past is inscrutable and far too deep for searching. Then how successful can you or I be in fully understanding the present? He's saying, listen, think of it by comparison. If the past, which is knowable because it's happened, if our ability to understand it only goes surface deep, then how are we going to understand what's going on right in front of us or even in the future? He's saying the wisdom needed to fully understand life is deep, very deep. To put it in perspective, it's like the Marianas Trench. You know about this thing? You could fit the tallest mountain in the world in the Marianas Trench and there would still be Thousands of feet of, of water. It's so deep. We don't even know what's down there. is saying, like the, the true wisdom is that deep. No one can go down there and come out alive. We aren't built for that kind of deep dive. And so the preacher is saying, friends, we're limited and we're broken. Wisdom is good, but our ability to fully know it and to utilize all of that wisdom is limited. We are limited. We're broken by sin. And that brokenness means that we're going to need something else besides wisdom to overcome our sin. The preacher is sitting with us in the exam room. He's being patient. He's being careful. He's telling us the bad news that we don't want to hear. First, he said, because of sin, life is unpredictable. And second, he said, wisdom is unpredictable unattainable but there's one more piece of this diagnosis because of sin failure is unavoidable verse 25 so I turn my heart to know and to search and seek out wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness so as he begins this third section he reminds us of the method he's tried to uh to employ in this book He's been making thoughtful observations and seeking and searching to understand how the world works. The last section was about how wisdom is limited by sin. This section is about how wickedness and foolishness are maximized by sin. He's looking at the, 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 the implications of wickedness and sin and he gives us some more bad news. Verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So in typical uh, uh, form, Solomon not only gives a principle, but he also gives an example. So a few verses earlier, he gave the principle, there's no one righteous. And then he gave the example of how we talk about people behind their back. Remember that? So here he does the same thing. He says, listen, I see that in the world there is foolishness that just cultivates wickedness. And now here's his example. And he gives an example of a woman who desires to snare and entrap men. And if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, uh, he he talks about the the forbidden woman or the adulteress. And people have often called her Lady Folly because uh, he also talks about Lady Wisdom. And he, he, you know, contrasts them um, throughout the book. Now let me just address something. Is Solomon saying all women are temptresses who are looking to entrap and seduce men? No. Most, most women want nothing to do with you, guys. Just be honest with you, okay? But Solomon is writing this book primarily to young men to help to, to teach them about how to live in a faithful and wise kind of way. And so that's why the example uh, to, 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 uh, to young men is he's saying listen, there are some women who may be doing, who may be trying to snare and entrap you. But you could easily just reverse this to make it applicable to our day. Solomon could have just as easily said, if he was talking to a, a, a room of, of men and women, to say, hey, women, by the way, there are men out there who are trying to seduce you and to offer, uh, 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 th- th- to give you a deceptive offer of delight. The examples in the Bible are meant to be seen for what they are and to be seen for what they meant or, or what they are pointing to. What he's ultimately saying is, listen, sin offers a false picture of delight and fulfillment when in reality it's a trap. The opportunity for uh, unmitigated pleasure with a forbidden man or woman is offering, in in one sense you go, man, that could be delightful, but it's really a trap. That's what he's saying. Solomon's saying, sin always over-promises and under-delivers. It says it'll give you something, but in reality it's meant to ensnare you and to entrap you and ultimately to kill you. And Solomon says that the person who's concerned with pleasing God and living a life of faith will be able to recognize those traps. See, when you're living your life to please the Lord, you see those things for what they are. The one who who doesn't fear the Lord will be entrapped by sin, taken by sin. And this doesn't, he's not only talking about sexual promiscuity as a temptation. There could be other things as well. When we come to these examples in the Bible, yes, we take those examples seriously, but we also ask, well, what are the other traps? What are the other things that that I might be tempted to delight in? The point is, be alert and ready to flee temptation. So do you struggle with pornography? Well, then flee the unobserved computer. Do you struggle with overindulgence with alcohol? Solomon's saying, be aware of that. Flee situations where you're tempted to drink. Do you struggle with substance abuse? Admit your addiction and talk to someone about getting help. Do you struggle with comparison and coveting? Then, friends, get off social media. Do you struggle with laziness? Solomon's saying, well, get up and do something. Do you struggle with overworking? Then leave your computer at work. Do you see the point? He's saying, think about all the things in your life that easily entrap you, that can offer a temptation of delight and fulfillment, where you might be tempted to put your identity in. Recognize that it's a trap meant to destroy you. Sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. Sin is seeking your destruction. And so Solomon's saying, do something about it practically. Practically. And don't miss this, he also gets at the heart posture needed to pursue holy living. Do you know what he, did you hear what he said? He said, the one who pleases God will escape it. Do you know how to please God? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please him. So another way to say it positively, with faith it is possible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. See, the heart that believes in God and desires to please Him and to live in the fear of the Lord is the kind of heart needed to see those sinful traps for what they are and to avoid them. Let's keep going. Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Okay. If, if uh, he were alive today, I'd say, hey, Solomon, don't write it that way, okay? At first glance, this seems misogynistic, but I think that has more to do with us reading our cultural moment into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. He's not saying that men, like on the whole or by nature, are more virtuous than women. Remember earlier he said, there's no one who's righteous. He's speaking in hyperbole to say that finding any virtuous person is extremely rare, And if we read it in context, he's already said that no one is righteous. There's no one who's outmaneuvered sin. All of us are seeking and searching. And out of all the seeking and searching that Solomon has done, he's had the confidence to say, I can't find basically anybody who is righteous. And then, verse 29, he says this, See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now listen, Solomon says, we can't blame God for our sin. We can't can't blame God for the way things are. We have to take responsibility. We have to look around and see the brokenness and the pain and realize that we have ourselves to blame. Why? Because God created us upright, but we have sought out many schemes. It's us who've deviated from God's path. And as such, failure is unavoidable. You know, the ancient mythologies of their day stand in stark contrast to scripture. See, the ancient mythologies of their day, so the competing origin stories of their day, depicted the gods as capricious and evil. And basically, they were responsible for the wickedness of men. Which isn't it just like humanity to make up mythologies and be like, yeah, the gods are evil, not us. Right? Like, we look around and see we're evil... And as we create these mythologies for the origin of the world, well, it wasn't us. It must have been the gods who made us evil. And so it's not our fault. Humanity, according to these mythologies, were subjected to a cursed world by the fate of the gods. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. The opposite is true. We broke the world. Genesis 1 to 3 stands in solidarity with Solomon. So when you look around and you see the lies, the hurt, the failure, all of it it's not our fate but it's our fault. We weren't fated for this. It's our fault. In 1908 the Times newspaper asked a few authors of the day to contribute to the topic what's wrong with the world. So it was like hey send us your op-ed piece on your thoughts about what's wrong in the world. G.K. Chesterton submitted the briefest response. Here's what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Not only is it the briefest response, it's the most profound. What he's saying is, we can't blame God for our sin. The first step to living in a broken, sin-soaked world is to admit that I am responsible for the brokenness. Both individually and collectively, we come to a place where we see that our failure in sin is what is wrong with the world. Now, I hope you see the diagnosis clearly. I hope you understand that because of sin, life is unpredictable. Life is painful. Bad things are going to happen. There's no cheat codes or guarantees. I hope you're seeing clearly now that because of sin, wisdom is unattainable. You can't just be wise and figure out how to live a life void of sin. And I hope you see that because of sin, failure is unavoidable. We just will not get better on our own. This isn't a problem that just goes away with time. And I hope in a, in, a, in a pastoral kind of way that it's a little bit depressing. I hope that you go, man, then what can we do? I hope you're depressed into dependence on Christ. See, the thread of the gospel in this text is that God originally made man upright. Did you hear that in the last verse? God made man upright. So here's what that means. If uprightness and beauty and wholeness and goodness were part of God's original design, then there's hope for that design to be restored. See, if the first word of creation was good, not vanity, remember God's original assessment of the world was it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then vanity will not have the last word. Matthew 9, verse 10 to 13. Hear the gospel, friends. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, that's Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, friends, the diagnosis is clear. We are sinners in need of a physician. My hope is that you've heard all of this and said, I cannot fix this on my own. This is a diagnosis that doesn't get better with time. It just doesn't go away. I can't fix it. I need someone who can. Thanks be to God that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, we are sick with sin, and we need a doctor who can administer the cure. That's why Jesus came. That's why he gave up his life as the cure for sin and death, so that in Christ our sin could be forgiven, the curse could be undone, and we could walk in righteousness. Let's pray.